Welcome to the Consciously Inspired Minds podcast, where we ditch the default and live life by design. I'm your host, Brandy White, personal growth enthusiast, entrepreneur, and lifestyle coach. I host conversations with creators, entrepreneurs, healers, and educators committed to living a life of truth, intention, and connection. Understanding how to evoke their higher nature, our guests take us on a journey of what it means to embody a life of conscious inspiration, joy, impact, and service. Get ready to be inspired. Welcome to Consciously Inspired Minds. I have a very powerful episode in store for you today. I'm really excited to introduce to you Tanya Schaefer. And Tanya is a licensed professional clinical counselor and co-owner of Hope Restored Counseling Services. She's also on the Ohio Counselor and Social Worker Marriage and Family Therapist Board and an adjunct professor at Xavier University. She's also the proud mother of two girls. Tanya, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? So good to see you. So good to have you here. For our listeners, Tanya and I have been going back and forth on organizing this interview today, and I am just, I couldn't be more thrilled to have her on. And I'm just going to go ahead and pull the cat out of the bag here and just say, today we're going to be diving into mental health. So I I do want to preface with this may be activating for some, and it may be triggering for some, but a conversation that needs to be had and that I wanted to have, especially on this podcast. So we're going to be taking a deeper dive into mental health, and I wanted to have Tanya on today as an expert who can take us through what we're up against and why we're seeing the increase of mental challenges amongst our youth and adults and how we're coping. And I also want to make sure that we're focusing on the solution, not the problem. So what are we doing about it? What are we here to enforce and to equip and to resource ourselves with to get ourselves and our children into a space and a place where they're once again thriving for life and thriving in life? So, Tanya, I'll hand it over to you with a question around, we always kick off with, what was your childhood like and how that may have connected the dots to where you are today? Well... I take a big sigh because it was a wild childhood. I grew up in a very small town called Gettysburg, Ohio. Well, there's all these little burgs, Pittsburgh, Gettysburg. And it was out in the middle of nowhere. And I lost my father. My father died when I was four of a brain tumor. So when he died, my mom had myself and my sister, who was only six months old. So, oh, wow. yeah, that obviously was kind of set a little bit of a tone, I would say, for my life. I, so, I remember he, it's, it's interesting in my field, I'll ask people to think about their earliest memory. Some people don't, can't remember anything. But I do remember some early instances when he was really sick before he died. And it's 
I don't know if that like changed how I look at things or take in details. I just have a very vivid memory of of that time. And I was so young. And how was that making you feel? Do you think it was a feeling that you kind of pulled forward into the work that you're doing now, being a witness to that? I don't know if it's a feeling as much as an as an observation, mm. just kind of being more aware in the moment and trying to like understand and put things together as a little kid. I think after that, I started having like just issues focusing and trying to sit sit still in class and, and all of those things. And it's hard for me looking back to differentiate. Was that my environment? Was that my, the trauma? It's, it's hard to say. Would you say it's fair to say that you felt distracted and the focus wasn't there after you had gone through that trauma and it had witnessed and observed mm-hmm. the pain that your father had gone through and just kind of being in that moment and being so present for it, but then later felt so distracted. Yes, exactly. And then my guess, full disclosure, I grew up in a, an environment with two alcoholic parents, my mom and my stepdad. And that was that was a lot. And so that was difficult. We had lots of chaos. And thankfully, I had my grandmother who is, uh, she's since passed, but she and I were very close. And she was someone I would go to. She was a very strong woman. And that was, that was who I would go to when I needed support. But thankfully, both my mom and my stepdad got sober when I was 21. Oh, wow. What a gift. Yes. But that was a long, that was a long road. That'll probably be a book down the road. But I absolutely know for sure all of those events and traumas have led me to where I am. Mm-hmm. And I, whenever I need to like put things in perspective or stay grounded or bring up strength to get through something now, I think back to when I was young, when I was little, and I had no idea. Like, I knew it was nuts because I didn't know, like, what to do, right? And I can remember, like, being, like, trying to fall asleep at night, being really scared and uncertain and the world scary. Now, as an adult, you go, I can still go to bed at night and be scared, and the world is scary. And I think back to that little girl who didn't know any better. Who had no life experience. And if I got out of that, I'm getting up anything. Right, right. So coming from that place, when did you first have this desire to get into the work that you're in? When yeah. did that first strike? So yeah. I think I mean originally I thought I wanted to be the next like Barbara Walters or Oprah Winfrey. That was my that was my Really? Okay. I always liked connecting with people and people, strangers everywhere still all the time come up and tell me their stories. My kids are like, why is that person talking to you? I'm like, I have no idea. But I think I started realizing I didn't want to move. If I really wanted to go into that career, you'd have to move all the time and jump around. So I probably I was hearing that going that way, I would say in high school and then into my 
bachelor's, but really not until after I got my bachelor's degree and kind of took on a couple different jobs that were not great. And then just decided, okay, this makes sense. I'm going to go this route. Yeah. Yeah. When you had first started your career in this space, take us a little bit through what you were experiencing in the early years of being in this industry of mental health and now where you see it going and the trajectory of where we are today. You know, when you're younger, you're you're more apt, I think, at least my opinion is you are more open to experiences, putting yourself in like different experiences. I look back at some of the jobs that I had that were in this field, but not private practice. I worked for the Children's Home of Northern Kentucky for many years, and I would go into people's homes and do counseling. And I look back now, and I'm like, what in the world was I thinking, you know, because you've been here invincible in your 20s. And I must have thought that because I was like, just some of the situations were, I just can't even believe it. But it was a it was a good experience because it I mean, I'm in people's homes. I am seeing their environment. I'm seeing, you know, every day and they trusted me. But I was doing basic like kind of just how can you, you know, function in your family and and I I mean I it was book it was I was educated, right, to go in and do these things. But I didn't have a life experience with it. So now, fast forward to now, I have that experience. And also, um, I think being in a different environment, like in private practice, it's different than being in like a community, working in like community services. But dysfunction is everywhere. That's been consistent. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. How old were you when you started in this work? So that I was probably like, probably like 25-ish when I was doing that type of work. Wow. So that is young, right? Yeah. You're just now at that point starting to adult and kind of getting your sea legs, if you will. Yeah. And I'm slamming 25-year-old. I, you know, I mean, they, I look back and I was like, why did I do that? Wow. Was there a particular moment in time, even then, that you realized you were in the work that inspired you? It's really, I think, little things that I would notice Mm. when somebody said, like, thank you, Mm. or you've helped Mm. us. And it's, it's probably hard for some people to understand. And they may think you go into this business to, um, you know, get compliments or the, or thanked or yeah. whatnot, but a lot of, you don't really get that a ton, right? right? Like and when I do, even to this day, I'll get a text from someone and it's like, I mean, it just melts my heart. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yes. When you come to work every day, what are your intentions? What are your intentions and the impact you want to make on a daily basis and why you do what you do? At the end of the day, I just want to help people to see that they can. They have the power to change their lives. It's... Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yes. And 
I mean, I've lost sight of that at times, you know, in my own mm-hmm. life. And I have to have, I have to have my resources. And I mean, I have done my own work in therapy and there's no way I could have been where I am now without doing my own work. Mm-hmm. So, but, and I was taught that by a therapist that, that I have the ability to, to, to change my life. I think what you said is so powerful, which is you yourself had to go through and do the inner work and do the therapy or do the whatever modality you choose in life, right? Because, yeah, it's especially in the work that you're in, wanting to serve others in such an intimate way, you can only go as far as your own personal growth. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. I think it's requirement that if you're going into this field, you should, you should receive some therapy. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So tell us a little bit about your practice and who you serve and who's coming through your doors on a daily basis. I want to practice Hope Restore Counseling with Maggie Gaylor. We met in grad school at Xavier and we have Maggie, Dana, myself, and Jim, my intern. We serve a variety of people. I see adolescents. I see 20-somethings. I see a lot, like a variety, right? Like families, couples. But I would say most of the people I really see on a regular basis are like 20-somethings. 20-somethings. Okay. So this is really where I want to be today, Tanya, is around this mental health crisis, especially in our youth. And we all as parents have this burning question around what is it that we're missing with our children feeling sad, depressed, anxious, alone, when they're out in the world into what we would witness as thriving in the way of they're involved in sports, they're getting great grades, they have, you know, a great social life. I know that's a big question, but where would you start in the way of what are we missing there, Tanya? Honestly, I think that there is a lack of empathy. Okay. I truly do. I am in my office, right? I'm listening to people. I might see eight people a day or more. And yeah, and I I think we're missing empathy. And I think social media is taking a toll. I mean, there are people that might not like that. I'm saying that, but I don't really care. Yeah, I will. I spend half of my day getting people to realize the impact it's having on them. And I'm not even been staring at the screen. I mean, they're not, I have kids who aren't going to bed at night because they're just, they're just constantly just scrolling through for hours. I mean, what in the world is that? Yeah. How is that helpful? I'm sure there, I mean, people will send me like funny little memes or whatever, and that's great. But there's also this whole industry of experts that are online. Now, again, I'm not like looking at it and because it would make me so annoyed. So that's part of the reason I've ever been on social media. That's part of your boundary. That's your healthy boundary. I get it. I totally get it. Oh, no, I'm not on Facebook. Oh, I will be annoyed and I'm, I'm just avoiding that. 
But I do think social media, but honestly, I think lack of lack of empathy. And I, I, I just wonder about that a lot. Tell me more about that. What does that mean to you when you say lack of empathy? I work with a lot of individuals who are in relationships and they come in and they start, you know, telling me what's going on in their relationship. And, and they may say, my partner is calling me names mm-hmm. or they're putting me down or they're telling me, why well, didn't say that? You're crazy. That didn't mm-hmm. happen. And, and then they may start questioning themselves and what they remember and what, what really did happen. And then it can turn into, you know, they start disparaging the person. You know, you can't, you can't get a job outside of the house. You've got to do this. And, you know, you're not, you know, worthy of this. And I do all of these things. And for you, I do all of these things for you. And I feel like I, there's an, increase in this type of behavior and as I'm in a session with someone I'm I'm thinking through it and I'm like they just don't the person they're with doesn't seem to have any empathy they can't put them they can't or won't put themselves in that person's shoes to think about how they feel so just to, to make sure I am clear on what you're saying is so more or less you see a lot of folks who are in these intimate relationships and one is lacking in empathy. And then, of course, the other one receives it as, OK, I can't trust in myself. I a lot of unworthiness and not enoughness is happening. Exactly. OK. Yes. But then also, I do think with young kids, elementary school or whatever age, I feel like there's something, and kids are kids, right? Kids are going to be mean or jerks at times. But the things that I hear kids say to other kids is so horrendous within the last, like, I don't know, five years, 10 years. I mean, little kids are telling other little kids, go kill yourself. What in the world? Like, what is going on? What is going on? Where do you feel that that's coming from? And so two things. (laughs) This topic just really gets me. So there's so many things I could say right now, but it's where are they, where are they understanding that sort of language? Where are they understanding that language? And then right. also, where are these kids in their way of development, like biologically? Right, right, right. And how they're able to receive and transfer communication and and, and yeah. what's happening there? You know, I, I don't know if I can if I can answer that. I don't know if, you know, these kids are picking it up from an older sibling if they're pick I have no idea why this like go kill yourself thing is is a thing but it is and I don't know and you know maybe a eight-year-old doesn't understand the you know the impact that that's making maybe they don't even know what they're actually saying but somebody needs to intervene and somebody needs to do something and address it You know, I had someone in my office not long ago who showed me a text from someone that they met online, a dating app, and the 
it didn't, the date didn't go well. And then the person's texted, go kill yourself. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. So going back to a statistic of suicide is the second leading cause of death in kids between 10 and 24. And when these kids or young adults are coming into you, are they disclosing these sort of thoughts to you as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, almost weekly. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And that in itself has increased having clients come in who have suicidal ideation. That has increased big time in the last 10 years or, or so. 10 years, maybe, maybe, yeah. But it's definitely, I'm, you know, I remember years back being like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, I have to be very like, you have to, you have to handle a suicidal person, obviously, very carefully. You have to ask very specific questions and you hope that they take your recommendation to go to the ER or whatever is necessary in that moment. There are times where I've assessed and I've made a recommendation, you need to go to the emergency room now. And May, I mean, this only happened once where I didn't see the mom and the daughter again. They were, it was one session and she was very suicidal. And I, I don't know whatever happened. Wow. Yeah, you're spot on. So, some of the information I have in front of me, and this is from the American Psychological Association, which is in the last 10 years leading up to the pandemic, feelings of persistent sadness and hopelessness, as well as su- suicidal thoughts and behaviors, increased about 40 percent, 40 percent among young people, according to the CDC. Mm-hmm. That gives me chills. I'm not that surprised. That gives me chills. Yeah. So, Tanya, tell me how, without saying too much, of course, respectfully, yeah. how are you counseling these folks and how are you equipping them and, and giving them the tools and resources when they walk out of your office to hopefully make a conscious choice to get back into balance with themselves and making positive life choices. This is where it gets kind of confusing for some people when someone comes into my office and they may say that they are, they were thinking about hurting themselves. I will ask them, you know, what does that mean? Tell me more about that. And if they say something like, "I, I was thinking about cutting myself, And then I'll go into questions about what's your plan. And then that's the same kind of question if someone says they're suicidal. If someone says they're suicidal, they have a plan, then that's like, obviously, that's one more level of concern. I mean, and I don't take any of these type topics or this topic lightly. I don't. Let's say I've had parents say to me before, well, we think she just wants attention. Okay. Well, what if she doesn't? And guess what? If she is seeking attention and this is what she's talking about, it's still a problem. There's still an issue. So if someone is actively suicidal, then I I want them to go to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at 
they can go to the emergency room and they can be assessed. But if the emergency room leaves them hanging out in the lobby for four hours, they might have just changed their mind and they might not say how they felt four hours ago. So I have to be super careful about what I say about when they leave my office and the resources available in our area. This lends itself to my next question around getting prompt care in those moments of feeling in those suicidal thoughts or just having those experiences and the 988 mental health and crisis line. And as I said at the top of the call, I really want to focus on the solutions here and what we can do to support our kids and our youth and adults for that matter, of course. Tell me a little bit more about the 988 mental health and crisis line and how that is supporting folks in distress. Mm-hmm. So this is the new national number to call when a person is feeling either a men- any mental health crisis and also suicidal. Mm-hmm. So this takes place, the 1-800, I forget, want to talk or I don't know what that, I don't remember the sure. number, right? Yeah. So 988 is me- so much more simple. I remember right. that. Yes, exactly. So what we're, you know, putting out to the community now to call that number and um, person who is trained to discuss whatever crisis they're having. And then if my understanding is correct, then they will send them other two different resources or provide them with resources. Yeah. Okay, great. And then they're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they would just have to dial 988 and then they'll get through. Yeah. Okay, beautiful. And I think another important piece to mention about the 988 Lifeline is they're really there to advance in the suicide prevention by really empowering individuals and advancing professional best practices and building awareness. Yes. Mm -hmm. So... As far as I love this piece, what I just said around building awareness, because I think that's right. where it all starts. What are you mm-hmm. seeing within your practice or even within the community, within our schools? Again, another big question. But what okay. are you seeing within the community that supports this building a- awareness around mental health and the positive, the positive movements right. we're making? Yeah. I would I would definitely say that it's been over the last 10, 15 years that the focus on mental health has gotten better. The people accepting it as a true disorder has increased. I still have to deal with people who don't think it's a thing, which is incredibly frustrating when it's a parent telling their child that they don't have anxiety, say anxiety isn't real or all the things they say. But overall, I do feel as a society, there's more of a positive focus on mental health. But then I also have to say that a lot of people think they're experts when they're not. And I think that can be scary. Let's talk about that because you've mentioned that a couple times, even when we were talking through social media. No, let's be there because if you're thinking it the listeners are thinking it too. So tell me a little bit about where you're coming from when people who say they're experts. Yeah. 
people, clients will come in and they'll say, you know, I saw on TikTok at this clip, whatever, about the signs of autism or being on the spectrum. And I'm like, okay, so what I will see is like, I don't even have to be on social media to know what's going on on social media because people will come in and say, I think I might be on the spectrum. I'm like, oh, okay. What makes you say that? And they will tell me that they've seen multiple things on TikTok from someone who claims to be an expert. And then I may have like 10 people in a month who think they're on the spectrum. And maybe they are. And then that's fine. Like, I'm glad they're coming in and we're, you know, we're going to talk about that. But then I will have, you know, somebody else come in and they think that they have borderline personality disorder. And I'm like, whoa, where'd that come from? And again, social media. And it's, if there are people that, you know, truly are experts because they have that or they are, you know, trained in it, great. But if you have like Susie in her kitchen just one day decides to act like she's an expert, that's not good. It causes damage. It's so bizarre to me how easy people can influence someone because they're on social media and they're an expert. What is an expert? What really, what does that mean? Right. So when we think in terms of diagnosing being clinically depressed or being on the brink of having suicidal thoughts and it really, you know, presenting itself as high risk, take us through what if a parent were to come in with their child and have concerns, you had just taken us through some of the questions that you ask. Okay, so then after that session, or maybe even if there's a little bit more color, you could give the listeners around what other forms do they have to fill out? What can they anticipate when they walk into your office? Because it may even be the fear of, and maybe you've experienced this, parents are like, gosh, I don't don't really know what to do, or if I'm in the right place, or if this is going to help, or I'm even afraid myself of the outcome of this, and I don't want to even face that, kind of being in denial themselves, right? So take us through, kind of ease some of the uncertainty around what can a parent expect when they walk into your office? Yeah, or or anyone's office for that matter. Yeah. So we try at at our office, we try to be very transparent from your first time you reach out to us. And we, I handle all the referrals. So someone may say, I need an appointment. And I'm like, well, okay. Can you tell me more about why you need an appointment? You know, what is it you're dealing with? And sometimes people will give a brief description. Sometimes they'll write out whole book. And that's, that helps me then determine if, which therapist would be appropriate for them. And even from an email, someone may say, I'm, you know, I'm having suicidal thoughts. Well, I'm going to direct them to go immediately to the emergency room. And I have, you know, I don't know in those situations what happens, but let's say someone says they're experiencing anxiety, then we'll pick a time that we ask them to go to our website and complete the intake packet. And that packet is pretty long. Mm -hmm. And it does give us 
information about where, you know, about past history, any past mental health treatment. And then it, we, we ask, are you suicidal? You know, have you had homicidal thoughts? We ask very direct questions. So when the day of the appointment, we look through, obviously, over that packet with them. And then if they are, you know, currently sort of suicidal, we address that immediately. Um, but it is, I totally get that it's an anxiety-provoking experience. Sure. Because you're coming to a stranger's office and you're going to tell them your fears or you're anxious or whatever. I remember when I went to counseling for the first time and I was struggling with anxiety and I thought I was crazy. I was like, this lady's going to read what I wrote and think I'm crazy. And I'm going to end up in a straight jacket. I don't even know if they do that anymore, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing. So that was, and a very brave thing to do. I, I agree. And, and I can tell usually when someone's, you know, anxious and I, I try to make it as relaxed as you can. And I try to be very real. I think that helps. So what kind of fears or uncertainties are coming up for them? And how are you nurturing that client in the moment through the entire process? So take us through even the outcome of the session. If it is a child, I suppose then at that point, you would get with mom or dad or guardian and say, hey, and then take us through that. So that's always interesting when you're treating a child. I mean, depending on the age, right? Because no matter the age of the child, there, that's my client, if that's the identified client. So you have to build a rapport with the child and the parent. And obviously, if any child discloses that they're, they want to hurt themselves or anything of that nature, the parent's going to know immediately for me. But you have to also hold confidence, have confidence or confidentiality with that, with that child. Uh, so I've had lots and lots of sessions over the years where they're like, I don't want to tell you this because I don't want my parents to know. And as long as it's not anything where they're, you know, they're being sexually abused, physically abused, suicide, anything, and, and you know, the, the parent's not going to know because I'm, I'm going to keep the, I'm going to work to have a relationship with that child so they have somebody they can talk to and that could be dicey. I that can be dicey, but it depends on the situation. If it's a younger kid, and I could tell, like just talking, cognitive behavioral therapy is not going to work. Then we'll play a game, a therapeutic game. I'll sit down on the floor. We'll you know play a game, and they and it's questions in the game that prompt discussion. So they they generally are more relaxed, but. Some people want a quick fix, and um, that's not normally how it goes. And that was going to be my next question, and and you had mentioned it as well about building rapport and how you, they can't just come into a stranger's office, and maybe maybe some do can be fully transparent and disclose all the things, but I'm sure a lot don't, and it's what especially if a parent is bringing them in maybe even a bit against their will. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine how maybe difficult and challenging that could be. But as far as take us through about how you're building rapport and how that's being received and 
sort of a timeline, I suppose. And I know there isn't a hard timeline for these things. That's a hard question to answer because everyone is different. You know, I may have, I've had little kids. My favorite are the 10 to whatever, I don't know, 16 year olds who don't Mm want to be there. And you walk out in the lobby and they look so pissed. They are just not happy. And I'm like, because I want to get them in the office and I want to get them to let yeah. open up. And, and it, so that takes time. I've had kids who are in the lobby who you know do not want to be there and then they won't stop talking once you get them in the office. And then I don't know if I can answer, give you a timeline. It kind of depends. No, that I totally understand that. Something else that came up for me as you were taking me through that was when you said how you get these, you know, teenagers coming in who don't want to be there and they're like, oh, what? it brought me to this question around how are you normalizing what they're going through? Because I feel like that's such a big part of it also because they potentially are feeling so lonely in their thoughts and to normalize that behavior could be so incredibly powerful for them in the way of not feeling alone and motivation and inspiration to move forward in their treatment or healing process. You know, I I try just to be very direct and I try to mm-hmm. obviously have empathy and try to I'll give examples of others, you know, obviously never disclosing anybody's personal information, but of other situations. And sometimes when a person hears that, or maybe it's something I've been through, I'll I'll share a bit, not a ton, because we're not allowed by our governing rules. You know, I think just getting a person to realize that there are lots of people who have felt that same way or experiencing the same thing can help, can help them realize they're not alone. But so many people feel they're the only one feeling this or experiencing something and getting them to know that's not true. It can be a challenge. And we're more connected than we think once we start to really understand people's stories. And I'm sure even being in the line of work that you're in, that really reveals itself because you do probably hear a lot of similar scenarios playing out, right? And wow, we are more one than we are separate. And we are experiencing more similar circumstances than we aren't and having similar thoughts. Take me through, what are the kids leaving with from your office as far as like this way of building awareness and are there worksheets? Are there websites? Are there, what are some of the resources that you're referring to them? So again, it kind of depends on what they're coming in with, what they need to yeah. address. And a lot of times if it's anxiety or if it's bullying, I'll take a different approach. Sometimes I may recommend books or I might recommend, you know, a, a workshop for the parents. Oh, okay. My first session is really gathering information and then trying to understand what it is they want help with. And then typically I give homework to people, things to do outside of the office. Maybe it's five things that trigger your anger. You know, if you're 
having issues in a social situation, challenging them to do something outside of their comfort zone. Often, I will work with people on cognitive distortions, things that we all think about, but we might not be aware of it, like focusing on the negatives or seeing things in black and white, overgeneralizing. I used to love to catastrophize things, so I would go to the worst case scenario. And that's pretty common for a lot of people. So trying to get them to first be aware of what they're thinking and then how it's impacting their emotions. Mm -hmm. So I have a worksheet that will, you know, depending on the age of the person, maybe pictures of those distortions, the cognitive distortions. It's more beneficial for a young kid and then obviously adult in worksheets like you had a thought what's the cognitive distortion and then how do you change that to a positive thought which sometimes it's really difficult to change but you have to start with awareness so I try to gauge how much insight a person has coming in the door Mm -hmm. because that's going to help me navigate how I can help them so if they don't have a ton of insight we got to start there. You got to always start where your client is. I didn't know what that meant when I was, you know, early on going through the program at Xavier, but that's, you can't, can't jump right into certain things if they're not there yet. Just depending on their level of awareness and where they are kind Mm -hmm. of in their life experience even. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times people will come in and they want to, you know, I've had people say, listen, um, I'm dealing with this issue and I don't want to talk about my past. And I'm like, mm, oh, wow, interesting. We'll see. We can do that. Like, I'll try. But I'm pretty, this is my opinion that if you've got a lot of unresolved stuff from your past, it's probably hanging out in your present. right. right. So I'm sure that you do have folks coming in with a lot of trauma, limiting beliefs around, I just want to fix this thing, just fix it, right? Uh And and not wanting to go back into the past or kind of look at their shadows. Oh, yeah, that's not fun. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh, the work. Yeah, right, right. But when you have someone, like the best thing ever is when I have someone in my office and you ask them a question or they say something and then you kind of see them pause and you could see the wheels spinning and you know they're almost right there. It's like, yes, because they you just can see that they're going to make some connection or realization. and, And it's just I love that. I that resonates with me so so much because I, I'm a coach and I have those moments as well. And when you say something in the client, you just you just feel something really connect. And it's this sort of enlightenment that happens or even when they come back from a previous session into a new session and something that you've said to them is deeply resonated and just something just clicks and unlocks for them. And it's oh, it's it's. It's a really beautiful thing to witness. 
Talk to us about, speaking of what we're doing in the community and in our schools, talk to us about the Ben Morrison Foundation and your involvement there. Ben Morrison was a student at Loveland High School, and he completed suicide in 2020. His mom is Tori Morrison, and she reached out to me, gosh, maybe two years ago, a year ago. Everything's over as far as time. And I don't know, we just connected, and she formed the Ben Morrison Foundation, and they have scholarships, and they do all kinds of things in the community to bring awareness to mental health. And she has put together mental health games, so partnering with different schools. Let's say Anderson, for example, and they will have a mental health football game, and everyone will wear teal, and they will talk about mental health statistics Oh, you know, over the loud the intercom or what's what word yeah, I want at the games and uh, like yeah, yeah at the, the games and we'll call out these statistics yeah yeah yes and I was at that game sitting in the stands and listening to the announcer talk about the statistics of suicide at a football game was ex- very profound mm-hmm. for me to. Who would have thought it would, that would ever happen? Uh, just bringing it to the to the community and to you know put it out there because there still is a stigma that people think if you say suicide or you know if you ask the person if they're suicidal, then that will make them think about it. That's ridiculous, right? Like it, it's more it's more risky not to ask them if they are right. than to think you're going to put that thought in their mind. Tori, she's a force to be reckoned with. And I know Tori and she is. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I just she's I respect her a yeah. lot and her story and her just what she's trying to do in the community is. In all communities, like right. tons of communities. She Not just ours. The mental health right. games. Yep, absolutely. Amazing. Oh, and I forgot the part where I'm not really sure how we all got formed this group. I have no clue how this happened, but it's Gina Merrick, who is, she has created an app called My Fab Five. Yes. And Tori introduced this to me. I'm so glad that you're mentioning this. Yeah. And that app, you download it and you can name five people that you can rely on if you are having a crisis. She, too, has her own story and is going, you know, around and promoting this app. And it's all to help people. It's only to spread the word that there are people out there that care. And so that's a resource. David Arellano is the person that works with the 98. And he too is going around just to spread this number, just to spread awareness to help. It's all to help mm-hmm. people. I say that because there's a community not too far from here who uh, gave some pushback about the 988 initiative. And I'll just stop there. Mm, yeah. And then Tori and myself created a podcast called Enough, which is 
breaking the stigma of mental health. So, yeah, it's kind of it just kind of happens. It always does. Right. When you when you form a group of inspired people, it's just infinite what you can create and the profound impact you can make. Tell us a little bit more about Enough, because I have listened to Enough. Our first season, we focused on suicide. We focused on Tori, told her story about her son. Gina was also a part of her own story. Her son also completed suicide. And we had guests that talked about being suicidal in their past. We talked about, you know, trying to focus on where people can turn for help and just mental health in general. And then our second season, we're going to explore things around addictions, how that impacts families and people Mm. in general. Amazing. Amazing. And we'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Today as well, uh, along with a link to the Ben Morrison Foundation, so you can show your love and support there around releasing the stigma. Again, just so profound because not only are we trying to normalize thoughts and behaviors for our kids, but also normalizing thoughts and behaviors for our parents who feel possibly some shame and guilt around what it is their children are going through and and thinking it's their fault as to why they're in this particular situation and how we're normalizing there. How are you supporting parents through your practice? So that in itself can be difficult depending on the parent's understanding of mental health. If you have a parent Mm. who doesn't believe that mental health is an actual thing, I've had to say some very blunt, direct statements to parents who may not believe that their child's going to do something to themselves to wake them up, whatever is needed. I've only had a few in my career where if I've said, you're going to need to take your child to the emergency room, and if they've kind of pushed back a little bit with either they don't want to or I don't know, we would be surprised what some people may say, then I I will have to say, well, then I do have to call children's services because you're not protecting your child. Doesn't happen a lot, but on the flip side, the parents here are suffering, questioning their parenting, wondering how this happened. In that moment, it's just about getting them to realize that this is how your child feels. And we can discuss later how they got here. But that's a hard place to be. Right. I mean, I'm a parent of two girls, two teenagers. And sometimes it's good that I'm a therapist and a mom to them. Sometimes it's not. (laughs) Because they're like, don't therapize me. Or, But then they're like calling me 87 times a day from the University of Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just trying to let them know that I'm there for them and there are others that will be there for them. Yeah. And I think that's that's what it's all about also is is really just showing up for the people that we love and that we care about and just being there with them. Right. Yeah. Sometimes there's nothing to be said. Sometimes there's nothing to be done. 
just being there and present with them and knowing that you care and, and love is really, you know, sometimes the remedy in the moment. I want to circle back to social media briefly here, Tanya, because I think this is a really powerful conversation. And you and I were chatting a little bit before this, and I was telling you I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day and how we're navigating social media with our kids. And our kids are around 10 years old, so we're not quite there in the way of them being really in the thick of social media yet. But it's like, how do we start to prepare ourselves for that? Because we don't want to come from this all or nothing approach and say, here, Mm -hmm. have at it or no, you can't have anything. (laughs) What is that balance? And what are you experiencing with some of these kids coming in? And what is your counsel to them in navigating social media? One thought I had while you were saying all or nothing is there are parents who prevent or believe they're preventing their like 16, 17 year olds from having social media. And I'm like, I highly doubt that your child doesn't have it because they are very smart and they will find a way. That's tough because I think you have to start with your kids young and talking about social media. That's a hard one because I think parents automatically go to don't give your name and your number because somebody's going to come and kidnap you. Well, I get it, but you want to you want to be careful because if you have an anxious child, then then you're going to add some more right, problems. Right, right. So I think you talk to your children related based on their age, and I I think you do have to have limits on screen time mm-hmm. and explaining to them the privacy settings, like who can see, you know, where people can see where you are on Snapchat, like. I was with someone recently and they were like, have you seen that Snapchat where where there's that? You could see that I saw my daughter was on a boat. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I can, I see that. Like they, you know, people will know exactly where you are at any point in time. And I have some of my clients who are like, you know, 23. They're like, yeah, my group of friends, we all know where each other are at all times. And I'm like, no, if I like that like idea. I mean, maybe if you're going to go out on a date, uh, you met somebody on Tinder and you want it, your friend to follow you, that's one thing. But I don't love that people can see where my kids yeah. are at all times. Yeah. I mean, I know you have to like date them, and, and, but I do think you've got that whole fear of missing out. Oh, okay. that is horrible. Horrible with social media. Okay. Uh, You know, like think back when you were young and maybe you looked out the door and saw you weren't invited to somebody's house for. Right. Or even as a thought, we can feel like we can. But now it is so hard to talk to someone, let's say a college student who's far Mm -hmm. away and they see all their friends are at some party where they grew up. But they, it's like a train wreck or car accident. They can't stop looking. Yeah. I'm like, you are not helping yourself. So setting limits on what they're looking at, consuming, how much time, letting them know. Now, you know, I told my girl years ago, I will take your phone at any time and look, you know, I will pick it up. If, if you look, if you seem shifty, I'm checking. Right. Right. So... I don't even know if I really did that, but 
known, letting them know, I well, or, you know, if something seems off. At the end of the day, I think you have to try to have a solid relationship with your kids yes. and build on, I think, respect and trust. And it goes one way. That's going to play a part in social media. If somebody has said something to them and they have that, you both have a mutual respect and trust, they're more likely to come to you about that. Oh, I love that so much. I think that is that is huge what you just said is the relationships that we're fostering with our kids and how we're cultivating the trust and the respect of one another. And going back to that all or nothing approach, I don't want to say, no, you can't do any of this because I want them to have that agency in their lives and I want them to be able to choose and to have that free will. But I think in turn with them knowing that I trust them and I always want to empower my girls, I always want them to feel empowered, that in and of itself then allows them to come back to me and say, and they do it today, hopefully it will continue. It's like, oh, I saw this and it made me feel really uncomfortable. Then they become more inquisitive about it versus, okay, let me just go down this this track and figure it out myself and see what it, what it leads me to versus like trusting how they're feeling in the moment and bringing those feelings back to me and saying, oh, this didn't make me feel great. And this is what I saw and experienced. What do you think about that? That's a really beautiful tip. I think what you had said also around the fear of missing out. And another thing that was screaming in my mind was this comparison mode and how it's just, oh my goodness. And Again, it, it's one of those things that's not going to be a completely avoided, but how do you nurture that in a way that allows our kids to feel enough, to feel worthy, to have that, that self-confidence and that trust within themselves? I think that's sort of the platform of it all. I have so many thoughts happening right now about that because I think as a society, we shifted to... You, you're on a team and then everybody gets a trophy. And it's like, I don't know how I feel about that necessarily. Does that empower and cause or create a, I feel good about myself because I was on this team or does it set you up for failure when you don't get an award or you don't get a trophy down the road? It's, I think, one of the hardest things for me as a parent and I'm sure lots of parents is trying to protect your kids from from anything and everything, but then also letting them fail mm-hmm. so they can learn and grow and move forward. I think there's so much truth in that, letting our kids kind of fail forward, like letting them fail forward. And even that goes back to what you said, Tanya, earlier, which is, And I think this was mentioned before we started recording today is this need for perfection, this perfectionism within our youth right now and what's driving that. And it's okay. We don't want you to be perfect. Like, what did you fail at today? Let's talk about that because that's that's where the growth is. That's a good point, because some of this is people have unrealistic expectations, Mm -hmm. right? I don't care. Kids to adults. I have adults who have these expectations that they should be debt-free and own a big, huge home and all of these things. I'm like, what is going on? Like, I think we have to work on our expectations. Mm. When your kid comes to you for the first time and is upset that they 
didn't get it 100 on their spelling test or they didn't make the basket. You need to sit down right then and there and you need to talk about, you're not going to always get what you want. Right. And you probably should start telling them life isn't fair. <laughs> Sounds really hard. Yeah. But early mm-hmm. on. And I mean, yeah. I knew life was not fair growing up, but it didn't resonate with me that I have to accept that until I went into counseling. So I've probably been way more harsh with my girls about life's not fair. So you might want to figure that one out. Right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it really does go back for me, even personally. It's not taking that free will from them, allowing them to kind of it's so hard to watch sometimes because you sometimes you know how it's going to end. That's again, that's where the learnings are. And that's that's kind of where the magic happens. All right. Mm-hmm. A few closing questions for you, Tanya, today. Thank you so much. How do you authentically connect with others? I think I allow myself to be vulnerable. Mm. I will laugh at my mistakes. I made a conscious choice when I was young not to be shy, which I know people, not everybody can do. But I remember being like awkward at this dance and standing like against the wall. And my cousin kind of teased me later and was like, I don't want to be like that anymore. I'm just going to work on being who I really am. And if you like it, awesome. If you don't, whatever. And that isn't easy for everybody to do. But I try to instill a little bit of that in my clients if they need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes that's what we need is someone else around us to build up that confidence. Like someone with the confidence who can also help us find that within ourselves. Amazing. What do you want your impact to be in the world? I think I want it to be in like little quiet moments where someone... Mm -hmm thinks about something I said to them or someone thinks about maybe I challenged them in a space that they were very uncomfortable with, but they did it anyway. I just want to make small impacts. Yeah. It's almost like that subtle but powerful shift in someone. Right. What does it mean to you to live a consciously inspired life? I was thinking about that earlier. I am not perfect. I have made so many mistakes in my life. But I think what I try to do is look at the big picture and how my past and my present are going to impact my future. I try to think about it all and just being aware. Yeah, I like that. How, you know, connecting the dots between the past and the present and finding that authentic connection within ourselves and always coming back to that because it's when we start to arrive from that is when we start to have the anxiety the sadness the depression but as soon as we start to get back closer to ourselves and our higher selves and what it is that is truly on our hearts and our deepest desires and our deepest inspiration is when we can truly find ourselves thriving every day every day And even in this sweet, small bliss of life. Right. Yeah. Right. Amazing. Well, Tanya, thank you again for being here. It was such a pleasure having you. Where can folks find you? Well, I'm not on any social media as I've said. Right. So, (laughs) um, Hope Restored Counseling 
is where I'm usually at. Amazing. We'll be sure to drop that in the show notes also. Okay. All right, Tanya, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Until next time, everybody. Bye-bye. That's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to learn more about Consciously Inspired Minds, you can visit us at consciouslyinspiredminds.com. Until we connect again, explore what inspires you. Thank you.